This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 20. John 20, we are looking this morning with our sermon text at John 20, verses 24 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace. Be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed pray. Father, open to us your word, a word given by your Holy Spirit through human instruments, yet preserved for us to the present day. Father, as we come to this passage, we come not merely to the words of John, but to the word of God. Pray that you would teach us from it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. His name has become part of our language, although not by itself. It has become part of our language with a word that precedes it, an adjective, an unfortunate adjective, really, doubting Thomas. I looked him up in my trusty American Heritage Dictionary, first edition, And sure enough, there he was in the dictionary right between doubtful and doubtless. Doubting Thomas, one who habitually expresses or feels doubts after St. Thomas, who doubted Jesus' resurrection until he had proof. I think Thomas would be horrified. Think about it. Why single this man out and label him As doubting. After all, he really doubted no more than did his fellow disciples of Jesus, to whom Jesus had appeared the week earlier and dispelled their doubts. Thomas was just a week behind them. And also, you think about it, it's somewhat unfair to take what for Thomas was the experience of at most one week of his life 
and use that to define him for all time. Because from this moment on, he was no longer doubting Thomas, but believing Thomas. And yet it stands that uh, people, not only in the church, but even people in the world, people who wrote the dictionary, know him by his, if only temporary, doubt. And so that's what we want to look at today as we come together to think about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we want to do so through the eyes of Thomas and looking at this through the lens of his doubts. Because the fact is, there are many people today who are like Thomas, who doubt, who question the reality of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's worth taking a look at that resurrection through the eyes of doubt, through the eyes of Thomas. So what I want us to do this morning is we look at this passage that describes Thomas' encounter with the risen Lord as to look at the need for evidence that he had, that we have, look at the abundance of the evidence for the resurrection, and then look at the appropriate response to the reality of the resurrection of Christ. So first of all, let's think about this need for evidence. Our passage begins with Thomas, who's one of the twelve, called the twin, and the first thing we learn here is Thomas was not with them when Jesus appeared. And, and we have the, the, the story of that encounter with Jesus in verses 19 through 22, just prior to our text this morning, where that very evening, the evening of the third day after Jesus' crucifixion, the evening of that day when reports began to be circulated that Jesus had been seen, and certainly that his tomb was empty. That evening, the disciples are gathered there, fearfully. They had seen what the Jewish leaders had done to Jesus, and they could only imagine what they might like to do to those who followed Jesus. They are meeting in a room. They're behind locked doors. And Jesus appeared to them. He says to them, Shalom, peace be with you. And he showed them his hand, he showed them his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And they go back to Thomas and they tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And in fact, the, the, the tense in Greek indicates it was repeated. They kept telling him over and over, look Thomas, we have seen the Lord, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas did not share in their gladness. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas's reaction is vehement. It's adamant as he replies to them. As they told him again and again, he replies apparently each time, unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands, unless I place my finger into those marks in his hands, unless I can touch that wound in his side where that spear pierced him, I will never believe. What accounts for such a negative reaction? What accounts for such an, a, an adamant rejection of the witness of his fellow ten remaining disciples? Maybe temperament. 
we, we learn something about Thomas as we encounter him in the Gospels. Thomas seems to be one of those people who is of a melancholic personality. Thomas reminds me a little bit of Eeyore. Remember the donkey, Eeyore, in the Winnie the Pooh stories. Good morning, Eeyore. You know, good morning to you, if it is, and I doubt it. Uh, Eeyore was, was sort of a gloomy, pessimistic character. Well, Thomas seems to come across that way in the scriptures as well. Remember when Jesus said, we're going down to Judea, that back down to Jerusalem, back into the heat uh, of, of the Jewish capital. And, and it was there that he, would, he was going to, along that, the way, raise uh, Lazarus. And the disciples are aware of the danger Jerusalem represented, and Jesus is determined to go. And it's Thomas who says, loyally but gloomily, well, let us go that we might die with him. It was Thomas when Jesus was talking to his disciples in John 14, who said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will bring you to myself there, and you know the way. And Thomas says to the Lord, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? I'm guessing Thomas was the glasses half empty kind of guy. And then of all things, Jesus appears after his resurrection, the very evening of his resurrection to the disciples, and Thomas missed it. Naturally. He wasn't there. People have been missing out when they skip the evening church service ever since. <laughs> but Thomas wasn't there. He missed it. Now, that again, may get back to temperament. We don't know. A lot of times people of a melancholic personality like that like to be alone. You know, the disciples had been severely traumatized by the events of the past few days. And perhaps they found encouragement and comfort from being together. But maybe Thomas was one of those who dealt with his grief by being alone, by being apart. He just was not ready to be back as part of this fellowship that had just been decapitated as their leader had been crucified the Friday before. John doesn't seem to blame him. He just notes the fact that Thomas was not present in that room behind locked doors when Jesus appeared. And Thomas may reject their testimony so strongly, not because he wanted it to be wrong, because he wanted it to be true, but he didn't see how it possibly could be true. Thomas knew what they knew, what you and I know, and that is the dead have a way of staying dead. They knew what happened to Jesus. People don't get up and go walking around after they've been crucified. And if Jesus did somehow manage to survive the scourging and the crucifixion, at best he would be lying in a bed in intensive care at Jerusalem General Hospital, not out making social calls. I'm sure Thomas would desperately have liked for their testimony to be true. But he knew that the dead stay dead. And he seems particularly fixated on those wounds of Jesus. The nail scars in his hand, the spear wound in his side, as his own demand for evidence suggests. You see, Thomas may have felt like he'd been taken once. 
but he wasn't going to be taken again. There are a lot of people like that out there today. People who have been involved in the church, been burned one way or another, think, not again. There have been people who have had no connection with the church, but they know very well that dead people don't come back from the dead. And they say, you know, that's a nice story, but I can't just accept it because you say so. I would like some evidence. I would like some proof. There are people who are hostile, who don't want it to be true. There are people who would love for it to be true, but just cannot bring themselves to accept that a dead man came back from a violent death and the grave. They've got a lot in common with Thomas on that account. We want evidence. We want proof. Well, the good news is that there's plenty of evidence. There's plenty of proof. And that's exactly what happens here. Eight days later, we have this abundance of proof for Thomas. Eight days later, which by Jewish reckoning was from one Sunday to the next, first Sunday to the next, first Sunday of the week, uh, they're again meeting. You see, from the, from the very beginning, the disciples met on the evening of the first day of the week for worship and fellowship, and here they were again the next week. They're gathered, and Thomas was with them this time. Maybe to see what would happen, maybe because he had come out of his seclusion and was once again longing for the fellowship of these men with whom he had been so close over the last several years. Again, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and once again greeted them in that typical Jewish fashion. Shalom, peace be with you. And then he turns and he looks right at Thomas. Put your finger here, Thomas. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Now, I'm sure it was spooky enough for Thomas that he did, in fact, see Jesus standing there, just as the disciples had said he had appeared the week before. But for Jesus to call Thomas out and name specifically the very proofs Thomas had so insisted upon must have been ultimately Unnerving. How could Jesus have known unless he was present, unless he was with Thomas, unless he heard Thomas's pleas for the evidence? Because he then, without asking or saying anything else to Thomas, presents to him and invites him to explore the evidence that this was, in fact, that very same Jesus whom he saw die a week before on Friday. So Jesus appears and he, he accommodates himself to Thomas's weakness. He says, Thomas, you want the evidence? Here it is. Check it out. Explore it. Look at it. That's striking to me because what that says is, one, the evidence is real. And two, we should not be afraid to invite people to explore the facts, to check out the evidence. Because if Christianity is, in fact, true it will bear up to the most intense scrutiny. If it's not true, what are we doing here on a beautiful Sunday morning like today? Jesus invites him to explore the evidence. And that has been the posture of Christians and the church ever since, at least at its best, is we believe the truth. This is truth. It will stand. You may check it out, examine it, test it, question it, throw yourself at it. All you want, the truth will stand. You see, Jesus doesn't say to Thomas, Thomas, you should have just believed. 
He says, Thomas, see the nail scars in my hand. Feel them. Put your fingers in them. Touch them. They're real. Feel the wound in my side. It's there. It's real. And then he says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. But only after he says to check out the evidence does he say, do not disbelieve, but believe. Now you say, well, that's fine. You know, if Jesus would just appear to me, I would believe. Or, as a Christian, if, if, you know, if Jesus would just appear to me, show himself in his resurrection to me, it would do so much to strengthen my faith. Would it? Would it strengthen your faith any more than the testimony you already have of the scriptures? The logical evidence we deduce from them? from the testimony of the Holy Spirit in your heart. But let me give you some other things to think about. You may not see Jesus, but think about this. Paul, in the passage we read earlier, spoke of the various people who saw the risen Jesus. Various of his disciples, over 500 at one time. James, last of all, to Paul himself. Many witnesses who were still alive at the time Paul wrote who could have contradicted Paul if that were not so. No, Paul, you're wrong. People didn't see Jesus. I mean, Paul, would, Paul put that in print. He put that out there because he knew it was true. There were very many people who witnessed the resurrection. Another bit of evidence that goes along with that is the change you see in the disciples themselves who go from hiding in locked rooms to boldly preaching the gospel in public, in the temple precincts, in the town squares, wherever it might be, at risk of arrest, at risk of flogging, at risk of imprisonment, and at risk of death itself. How do you account for that change? The disciples were trying to pull a fast one on us. They would not have been willing to die for what they knew was a hoax. In fact, they were not willing to die here at all. They were hiding. They were afraid. They were huddled under cover. What accounts for that transformation, if not the knowledge that everything Christ had told them had happened just as he said it would, and in fact, he had been raised from the dead? Likewise, how do you account for the change in Saul of Tarsus, who went from being a hater and persecutor of the church to within one trip encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus and going to the town where he was intending to have Christians arrested and begins preaching the gospel of Christ? if not for the fact, as he himself says, that the risen Christ has appeared to him. You cannot account for these things except for the reality of Christ's being risen from the dead. The disciples didn't expect it. Obviously not. They were as stunned, they were as surprised, they were as doubtful as any skeptic today could possibly be. And yet they were confronted with its reality, and their lives and history were forever changed. No, we don't see Jesus. But notice what Jesus says in verse 29. Thomas says to him, My Lord and my God. Thomas is convinced This confession of faith, what some have described as the climax of John's gospel, culminating in this glorious confession, acknowledging not only the lordship, but the deity of Christ. 
You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses say it's just an expletive. It's a cry of astonishment. It's sad, isn't it? That, that you have to so twist the scriptures to fit your perverted doctrines. What could be more obvious than Thomas is acclaiming that one he knew, now standing before him, risen from the dead, the high point of John's gospel, my Lord and my God. Thomas believes because he sees the evidence. He sees Jesus, and Jesus himself had named Thomas's own demand for evidence. But notice what Jesus says in response. Verse 29. Have you believed, Thomas, because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's a blessing on you. Blessing on me. Because although we have not seen the risen Jesus with our own eyes, we have the testimony of those who have. And that, their testimony, recorded for us in Scripture, together with the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, convinces us that Jesus is, in fact, the risen Savior. So the response to the evidence for Thomas was faith. The response for us to the evidence is faith. So we, with Thomas, cry out to Jesus, my Lord and my God. You believing in Jesus today, you trusted in him, the one who is the risen Savior, the one to whom the evidence, the one to whom history itself testifies, was crucified, dead and buried, and rose again on the third day. We do need evidence. We have the evidence. The response to that evidence is to believe in the risen Savior. We don't see much of Thomas after this. He occurs a couple more times. In fact, in the next chapter, uh, Peter announces he's going fishing, and Thomas says, well, I'll go too. And so he goes fishing with Peter and some of the other guys there in John 21. And then they later encounter Jesus on the beach there, John 21. We encounter Thomas again. He is named specifically in Acts chapter 1 in a prayer meeting that the disciples held to pray for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised would occur after his ascension into heaven. And Thomas is named there as part of that prayer meeting. And then Thomas, scripturally speaking, fades from view. Tradition tells us that Thomas later made his way eastward, perhaps as far as India, preaching the good news of a risen Savior. I want to suggest something to you, something that may change the English language, maybe make its way into a dictionary someday. How would you like it if at your funeral someone got up and remembered all of the worst about you? You know, sometimes you run the danger of justification by death. You take someone and they suddenly become glorified and you're not even sure you recognize them in the eulogy. Well, what if somebody got up and just remembered you at the funeral by, by, by your worst possible moments, those you know, ten worst lapses that you had in your life, in your behavior, in your faith, whatever it might be? You wouldn't like that very much, would you? Well, then why do we remember this disciple of Jesus, Thomas, by what was worst about him, by his most notorious failing? I would like to make a suggestion to you. I would like to suggest that we no longer refer to this honorable follower of Jesus as doubting Thomas, but that from now on he should be known as believing Thomas, because he believed for much longer 
than he doubted. And you know, if, if believing Thomas could be here today, I think he would simply repeat to you the words that Jesus spoke to him. Stop doubting and believe. Believe in a risen Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Thomas, and we identify with Thomas. Lord, we want to see. We want proof. We want evidence. Father, we thank you that in the Scriptures you supply us that evidence. The many witnesses who saw Jesus and testified to that. The many lives that were changed by the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And in fact, the subsequent history of the church as the risen Christ has been proclaimed and has been changing lives and marriages and families and cities and states and nations ever since. Father, we thank you that this Jesus has come to us, his gospel has come to us, and we have believed in him, and he has changed us too. We thank you, O God, that because he died for our sins, our sins are atoned for. We thank you because he was raised on the third day. You accepted that offering, and we are justified in him. Increase our faith, Lord. Make us bold witnesses of this event that took place in history about 2,000 years ago. And Father, we know that Jesus said he would die and be raised, so also he said he would return a second time. And Father, we believe his word, and we look forward to that return in glory of our Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that we might be prepared for that great day by having taken refuge in Jesus now by faith. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.